Hello, this is Tony Lloyd. Being a broadcaster for many years, I have witnessed some great stories in the music industry, and now I want to bring as many music stories to you as I can in this series of podcasts. My goal is this will inspire and maybe help up-and-coming musicians and maybe some experienced ones too. Music Stories with Tony Lloyd. Leslie Ann Jones, welcome to Music Stories. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. Thanks for talking to me again. Now, this is your second interview on Music Stories, so I'm privileged. <laughs> uh, the privilege is all mine. Thank you for having me back. <laughs> you're very sweet. Uh, you've been doing, you've been doing, we'll get on to the reason you're here in a minute, of course, but uh, you, you've been doing so many interviews. Um, who haven't you... <laughs> been interviewed by you've done loads and loads you must be rushed off your feet it's been an incredible couple of weeks actually and uh, the response has been magnificent so pleased because you know it's for an author it's the only contact we have with the outside world really mm. most of the time we're locked away scribbling away by ourselves uh, occasionally venturing out to do an interview with somebody or mostly because of what's been going on in the world mm. we've been doing such things over zoom and skype and on the phone and things but i have managed to to get out to see a few people but most of the time we work in a vacuum so to to give birth to that book, which is what it feels like. Every book is like a new child. It's suddenly out there in the world and you think, oh no, it's uh, it, it's it's not tucked away inside you anymore and, and you have to give it legs. And then to go out and talk about it with other people who are interested in it and have read it and want to, to discuss the content, that actually is a real pleasure because it's, uh, yeah, it's another dimension to the job really, isn't it? I've got this image of you sort of emerging, blinking into the sunlight, waving your, your latest book. It's exactly like that. <laughs> waving a white flag as well, usually. But yeah, no, it's exactly like that. And uh, it, I suppose it's like having been, I don't know, in prison really for, for, for a stretch. Hmm. And then suddenly you're let out and you're the inclination out. is to go a bit bonkers. But yeah, try and keep a lid on it, you know, Tony. <laughs> How many books have you written now? It must be. Um, I mean, I, I, not counting the ghost rights because I have ghost written quite mm. a number of books for different people, and my name in those cases doesn't appear on the cover, so it's not sure. obvious that I wrote them. I think it must be getting on to about twenty-five now, oh, yeah. but yeah. I think there are about a dozen out there with my name on. Okay, yeah. that's that's brilliant. Okay, so you, your latest book um, out of that bunch is "Love of My Life: The Life and Loves of Freddie Mercury." which sounds, I haven't read it because it's only just come out, but I will do, and it sounds fascinating. What inspired you to write about Freddie? I've written about Freddie before. Uh, this is my actually my fourth book. My first was in 97. Uh, then I rewrote, well, I didn't rewrite, actually. I wrote from scratch. The, the publisher approached me to, uh, to update the original book because there was talk of a film coming out. That film actually took 10 years to materialise. And I said, no, I didn't want to update and re-release the original because I, I'm more mature as a writer now. I could do it better uh, and things have moved on and my opinions have changed. So I wrote another book, which was published in 2011, as I said. And then when Bohemian Rhapsody did eventually emerge, uh, we 
did that book again and we retitled it to match the film. So that's about 10 years ago. Uh, the book came out well ahead of the film. Um, but then there was that, that sort of republishing of it. And then, you know, I never stopped thinking about Freddie Mercury, actually. Um, he's somebody who haunts me. Very few of them do, but I walk around with Freddie in my head. I have done for a long time. He's such a fascinating character. And it occurred to me that his 30th anniversary was approaching. And I thought, goodness, he's actually become today someone completely different than he was during his lifetime. He is nowadays this incredible icon for the LGBTQ community. But Freddie never came out. And I have three young adult kids in their 20s who, who assume and believe that Freddie Mercury was out and proud because that is today's stance, isn't it? Um, all yeah. sexualities, all orientations, everything goes, and, um, and gay pride and all the rest of it. But that wasn't the case in Freddie's day. He didn't have that advantage. And he did never come out. So, so there was that. And also, he's a bit of a poster boy nowadays for diversity. Mm. And again, he turned his back on his African roots. He was born in Zanzibar. He was educated in India, thousands of miles away from home. But when he came to England at the age of 18, to all intents and purposes, he became British and white. Mm. So I think he'd have to rethink that today if he was still with us because that isn't our stance today is it and no. i think he would have to come out in support of of his ethnicity yeah do you think that's why he didn't come out because he'd spent his life really uh, hiding his true identity i think it was different then i mean we have to remember that he died at the end of 1991 30 years ago, we were living in the shadow of AIDS, which was a death sentence mm. back then. It still is in vast swathes of the world. A lot of people in the West think that AIDS has gone away. HIV doesn't exist anymore because we have the drugs and they can be administered. The disease is controlled for the vast majority here. But in the third world, millions of people are still dying of it. Yeah. And the Macri Phoenix Trust, which was the charity founded by Queen and their management, after Freddie's death, kicked off and launched with an enormous concert at Wembley Stadium in honour of Freddie, at the Freddie Mercury Tribute Concert. And they've raised millions into research and um, the medical support of uh, those who are, who are involved in the battle against HIV and AIDS. But we didn't have that during Freddie's lifetime. And it was considered a shameful thing if you or any member of your family was HIV positive, infected, or if you had full-blown AIDS, there were cases of aristocratic families being deleted from Debrett's peerage, the uh, sort of Bible of, of the aristocracy, if a member of their family had AIDS, which imagine that happening now, there would be an outcry. Yeah. But back then we were terrified. There was such, such fear and such shame attached mm -hmm. to that disease. Yeah. Uh, compare it to the pandemic, the, um, what we're going through now and have been going through for the last couple of years. You know, it's, it's out there. It's open. Everybody is affected. Yeah. But everybody yeah. was trying not to be involved in the fight against AIDS back then. So it's little wonder that Freddie stayed in. There was the other aspect to it, which was he didn't want to embarrass his parents 
homosexuality is considered anathema in the Zoroastrian Parsi community that he was from. Mm. And uh, he, he didn't want to offend anybody, so he kept it to himself. Yeah, understood. I know people, um, you know, in England who uh, who have come out as gay and, and and been totally cut off by their by their parents and beaten up by their by their siblings. You know, it's it's just incredible. It's a shocking thing, and mm. uh, it's against the law nowadays. Of course. Yeah, of course, it wasn't back then. Yeah. But you know, we've all had the conversation with ourselves: what would we do if one of our children came to us and? Mm made that announcement. Actually, would we really mind today? I think I would rather my child be happy than anything else. Yeah, and yeah. if they're in a stable, loving relationship with whoever it is, it's not for me to judge. No. It's not for any of us. We are enlightened nowadays. We weren't back then. I agree. So um, how did you meet Freddie? Uh, professionally, I was a journalist on the, the Daily Mail at that point. And I was dispatched as a young a rookie off down to the Queen offices in Notting Hill to interview Freddie and Brian May. And uh, of course, it was one of my early celebrity interviews. And I was pretty terrified. <laughs> but Brian made it very easy. He's very articulate and very kind and chatty. And he did most of the interview. And Freddie sat in a window seat, just kind of staring out to see, as it were and not really engaging very much, didn't have a lot to say. And I I did uh, direct a few questions at him. He wasn't that forthcoming, really. I felt as though he were in a world of his own mm. to a large extent. And Brian said a couple of funny things during the interview, and Freddie laughed spontaneously. And because he didn't know me, his hand flew up to his mouth to cover his teeth. Yeah. And I learned later on that only when he knew somebody and trusted them well that he wouldn't cover his mouth when he mm. laughed because he he didn't feel the need to disguise. He had extra teeth in the back of his mouth on both levels that pushed his front teeth forwards. Right. Uh, interestingly, when he was out on stage singing away, he would sing in full voice with his mouth wide open, and he didn't do that during the singing. So <laughs> whether that was anything to do with the fact that the audience were much further away <laughs> and might not have been able to see his teeth, or mm. or whether he was just abandoned to the moment and and just being that incredible performer, not immersed in, in himself and self-conscious, but so gleeful and joyful that he was doing the thing that drove him, yes. that was the essence of him, and he forgot to do it. Who knows, really? Uh, maybe he forgot his inhibitions, you know, and just got into the performance. Yeah, I think it was that. Mm. Mm, brilliant. Yeah. Well, it was quite incredible, you know, and still listening to his music now is, is amazing. I was reading the other day that some scientists had analysed his vocal range and uh, how his voice is constructed technically and they're all amazed and most people have this sort of range and this timbre and everything else and his was just off the scale according to these scientists which uh, sort of scientifically proves what we all know you know that he had this amazing voice the thing is they're analyzing recordings 
And it would be much more fascinating to me were Freddie still alive if they could have analysed his actual voice. Because we all know that um, all kinds of techniques are used in the studio to, to change things, elevate things, play them down, lift things in a certain way. So it would be much more relevant to me, that kind of activity, if if they'd been able to study his actual voice as opposed to his recorded voice. Yeah, I agree totally. Yeah, it's a shame he's not around. Um, so did your, you said that your first meeting with him was um, a little awkward, if that's the right word, but did your relationship with him on future meetings improve or was he always like that with you? I could never claim to have had a relationship of any kind with Freddie. PRs like to play that up over the years. Of course they do. Yeah. Uh, but no, I was a journalist. I was there in that capacity. And I did have encounters with him over the years, but I never had a personal one-to-one -one relationship with Freddie, no. Yeah. Um, I think my face became more familiar, so I was less of a threat. There was always that sort of looking around moment when if they didn't recognise you or didn't know who you were. We mustn't forget that in December 1980, John Lennon was assassinated and all rock stars after that became wary. And the security did step up and there was, it was less relaxed backstage, let's say, that kind of yeah. thing. So, so they were more protected after that because I think actually every single one of them was thinking to themselves, who's next? Yeah. It can happen to John Lennon, you know. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And that was shocking, you know. Um, okay, uh, so you said that this is the fourth book about uh, Freddie. What's uh, the difference between those books, do you think? Have you sort of come up with um, new uh, thoughts, new memories, new material? I went back into all the recorded interviews that I had over the years and I did more research. And I wanted to retell Freddie's life story through the people who've been closest to him. We always hear, for example, that uh, he loved the music of Jimi Hendrix. Jimi Hendrix was his first idol and he became a rock star because of Jimi. There was more to that. You know, it's a kind of a throwaway line, really. Jimi Hendrix isn't with us anymore. But that led me to want to know more about Jimi and what it was about him that inspired Freddie. Because Jimmy was known primarily as a guitarist yeah. and Freddie was primarily a vocalist. So how could he have been his idol? What was there? What was the connection? Yeah. So I explored that. And I wanted to know more about Zanzibar. I'd written about Zanzibar before, but I went back uh, because there's always more of that story to tell. Zanzibar, again, is a very different place from how it was during Freddie's lifetime. Mm. And then... There were the people who were left out of Bohemian Rhapsody, the film. We know about them, don't we? People like Barbara Valentine, who was a girlfriend of his in Munich in the 80s when Queen were recording there. They were on a bit of a tax break from the UK and uh, working with Reinhold Mack in Germany. And Freddie had this encounter with quite a famous Austrian-born German actress, this Barbara Valentine. And they just fell in together. I think they were a bit like soulmates, you know. I, I got the impression that from what she told me, she also is now deceased, sadly. But I did spend a lot of time with Barbara over the years. And I think they met their match in each other. Mm. They were both larger than life. They'd both been war babies. They'd both been detached from their families. They'd had difficult lives. They'd both experienced huge fame in a way 
in yeah. their own way. Yeah. And yeah. so they weren't flawed by each other's status in life. Mm. They met in the middle. I think whereas Freddie's, almost all of his boyfriends over the years had been, and I don't mean this in a derogatory way, but they'd been less than Freddie. They'd been sort of quite simple men, uh, working class people. Um, he liked sort of rough blokes, really. It was a bit, bit sort of bit of rough, I think we used to say, didn't we? <laughs> yes. They weren't sophisticated. They weren't the Dickie Bode Opera Brigade, as it were. Yeah. And so I think Barbara was much more sophisticated. She was the one when they went out to dinner, she would order from the menu. She knew he didn't eat much, but she knew what kind of things he would like. Mashed potato and caviar, mostly. That was uh, Freddie's idea of a good dinner. And she would order the wines and, and so on. And, and of course, he loved vodka. Stolik Neue was his preferred brand. And Barbara would sort of take control. So she mothered him to a large extent. And she said he used to call me mummy, uh, which is quite an interesting thing because Freddie was separated from his own mother, Jabal Sara, when he was eight years old. He was sent away to school in India. And after that, he only saw his mom and dad once a year. He couldn't phone them. There weren't phone lines between oh. India and Africa at that time. And he wrote letters and they wrote back. And during the holidays, he would go to Bombay as it still was, Mumbai today, and stay with his auntie. So that causes separation anxiety, doesn't it, when you're yeah. detached from your family? And I think from that age, you're always looking. There's a void there. And you're always looking to fill that void. And sometimes people confuse sex and love they believe that they are the same thing, but actually, of course, they're not. Mm. They, sex is an aspect of love. Mm. But I think in the early days when Freddie was experimenting, as all young people do, that sometimes somebody's physical desire for him and his for somebody else was perhaps misinterpreted yeah. and misread mm. and, and considered to be the same thing. I think we've all universally been in that position. Yeah. So nothing unusual, really. But but Freddie being such an extreme person, it probably had more impact on him. Mm -hmm. And of course, he had that creative outlet, that drive to, mm -hmm. to pour all of his emotions, his feelings, his passions into songs. Yeah. And mm -hmm. the urge to do that occurred to him quite early on. He was in a band, The Hectics, at school from the moment he was discovering Elvis Presley and Chuck Berry and Little Richard and all those great 50s artists because he was exactly the right age to be affected by them. And those records were starting to arrive in India. So it was all a happy collision, really. Yeah. He's, he's, they quite often find that musicians' lives, their personal lives, really affects their writing and their composing and so on, uh, obviously. And, you know, Freddie's life was, quite, as you say, quite extreme and difficult and so on. So that obviously had an input into his, uh, his writing and his songs. Yeah, of course. And uh, Freddie wore his heart on his sleeve. Mm. He wasn't shy about uh, writing about what was going on in an obscure way, you know, like a poet does. And you could say to him, what does such and such a line in Killer Queen mean exactly? And he'd say, well, it means whatever you want it to mean. Uh, if you see it there, then it's there. Mm. You know, but don't ask me to explain it. I wrote it. It's out there. It's, it's for you to interpret, which was quite clever of him. Yeah. 
Genius. You mentioned Brian May. Are you still in touch with him? And did he contribute to, to the book? No, um, I wanted to stand back from the band because they've they've had a really long career and they've had 30 years more of a career because Freddie died. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to analyse that. And I didn't feel that I could put that to them in those precise terms because they wouldn't have liked that. But the fact is that were Freddie still alive, they wouldn't have been able to continue as Queen yeah. with him out there doing his solo thing. Uh, they would have had to call it a day because Freddie had had enough of rock and roll touring. It's unbelievably grueling out there on the yeah. road. And it does take its toll. And Freddie had been doing it a long time, you know, mm. 15 odd years by the time they got to Live Aid. And then they went out again in 1986 on the big European tour, 26 dates. And that final date at Nebworth in August 86 with Freddie at the helm. And they would never tour with him again. Mm. I don't think had there been some cure for AIDS at that point and that Freddie had got better that he would have gone out as the front man of queen again i think he would have because he was already into uh recording rock opera style material with Montserrat mm. caballé mm. we know about barcelona and i think he would have done more of that kind of thing i was going to so ask you what, do you what do you think you'd be doing now because uh he would have been 75 recently wouldn't yeah he? i mean how many 75 year olds are out there everyone would go well the rolling stones <laughs> are still on the road or about to be back on the road um, Charlie Watts was replaced pretty quickly, but what most people don't know is that Charlie Watts had chosen his successor because he knew he wasn't going to be well enough to go out on this resumed American tour. Mm. So Steve Jordan was Charlie Watts's choice, but not very many. Yes, all right, McCartney, and he's 80 next year, but he takes his time. His backup band is very supportive um, both instrumentally and vocally. So it doesn't really strain Paul's voice too much, which people will criticise and say, oh my God, he doesn't sound like he used to. Well, of course not, he's nearly 80. But I think Freddie, Freddie had an idea that, that it probably wasn't dignified to carry on as a rock band and to rock until you drop. It's mm. fine for some people. Mm. It's not fine for everybody. It wasn't fine for Freddie. He'd had enough. So I think he would today, not maybe now, but I think in in recent years, I don't think he would have gone into his 70s still doing it. He didn't no. have to, didn't need to. But I think he would have gone that route, the concert route. Mm. So he'd pop up every couple of years in one of the great opera houses of the world, and uh, and give a give a concert and it would have all been terribly grand and that was what he was aspiring to at that stage in his life right. it, we should remember as well that he died age 45 and he considered his 40s to be too old to be being in a rock band did he it's very interesting isn't mm, it yeah it's it changed is. our attitudes and also of course you know <laughs> human beings get old and then they die <laughs> And, Unfortunately, and, yes, and, we do. <laughs> and um, you know, when you've got incredible talent uh, and a voice, then that does get affected. I mean, Paul McCartney's voice isn't what it used to be at all these days. You know, bless him. Um, and you know, playing instruments with uh, arthritic hands and so on and so on, it's, it, it it all deteriorates, doesn't it? You can't keep going. It does, but where there's a market, where there are fans, mm. and where there's a personal desire to keep on doing it. Nobody tells Paul McCartney what to do. You know, he's, he's a multimillionaire. He's influential all over the world. Mm. Fans and bands worship him. Mm. 
And that little opportunity, not a little one, actually, it's huge. The tickets cost a fortune, but Mm. we never fail to go. I always go with my kids and and it's always an extraordinary experience because it's, 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 History. Yes. You're seeing Paul McCartney perform today. He, when we went a couple of years ago, now it must have been December 18, I think, and he brought Ringo Starr up on stage and they performed. And Ronnie Wood actually was there and they did get back and a couple of other things. And I said to the kids, photograph this with your eyes because there is half the Beatles on stage, half a century after they broke up. And most people won't see this in their lifetime and you are seeing this so really take pictures in your mind and remember this as a major major musical moment because when you are old yourselves you can tell your grandchildren i actually saw half the beatles perform (laughs) which for people in their early 20s that's extraordinary yeah absolutely yeah incredible i I wish i'd been there (laughs) but uh, there you go okay so your book um, is available now, Love of My Life, The Life and Loves of Freddie Mercury. Uh, it sounds awesome, and your knowledge of Freddie Mercury is second to none. So it's it's um, I'm you've certainly whet my appetite, and probably everybody listening to this podcast as well, I can imagine. Um, is it available uh, through the usual channels, Amazon, etc.? Wherever books are sold, yes. I know that Waterstones have it and also Amazon is the usual route, isn't it? But um, Uh yeah, it's widely available and I've been really delighted by the the reaction to it so far. That's brilliant. And what's in the pipeline for you? Who's next? (laughs) Oh, I've had people jumping on. You know how the trolls and haters... start coming out on uh, Twitter and so on. I don't believe I've, it. <laughs> yeah, I've been accused of jumping on the bandwagon of Charlie Watts's death <sighs> because I'm working on a book about the Rolling Stones. Now, I signed the contract for this new book last year, mm. long before we knew there was any problem with poor Charlie, yeah. God rest his soul. But next year, 2022, we'll see the, believe it or not, the 60th anniversary of the Rolling Stones' first ever gig in 1962. So the book is to mark that anniversary and to take another walk through the Stones' uh, collective lifetime and reconsidering them as a band, as a cultural entity, um, what they have come to represent today, and to to go through their story again. You know, somebody said to me on a, a radio show the other day, can the Stones survive the death of Charlie Watts. So I said, well, yeah, they survived the death of their founder, Brian Jones. Um, They survived the loss of uh, Mick Taylor, who replaced Brian Jones. He went, Ronnie Wood came in. They survived Bill Wyman leaving. And the core of the band, which you'd have to say is Mick and Keith. As long as Mick and Keith are going, there are the Rolling Stones. That will keep rolling on. They've had the same bass player since the 90s, Daryl Jones, who replaced Bill Wyman. Um, The sound is still the same. The songs are still the same. The Who still go out. We've only got Roger Daltrey and we've got Pete Townsend. The rest of the lineup is different. Mm. John M. Whistle left us. Keith Moon left us. But that band still rolls on. And I expect that the Stones will I wouldn't be surprised if, if Keith Richards doesn't die on stage, you know, but Keith has been the stone that everyone has been saying for years. Oh, how is he still alive? <laughs> but they've been saying that for the last 50 years. <laughs> He'll probably be the one who outlives the rest of them. Probably. But it's a very interesting life. <laughs> I've been talking to Andrew Lou Golden, 
who was their original manager, who lives deep in the forests in Colombia. Uh, but we've had some fascinating conversations um, over the last few months. I so badly wanted to go and see Andrew, but at the moment, Colombia is a it's a red territory. We mm. can't get there. No. The Home no. Office won't let us. So um, we've had to talk on the phone instead. But but yeah, it's been unbelievably fascinating. So um, well, we look yeah, forward that to, one's to come next year. We look forward to that, and um, maybe we'll have a chat about that one as well when it comes out. That would be nice. Thank you. I would absolutely love to. <laughs> You're very sweet. Leslie Ann Jones, thank you so much for talking to me on Music Stories. It's been fascinating. Thank you. Thanks for having me back. Music Stories is a free podcast with no fees paid to contributors in the hope that it'll inspire and help others in the music industry. Get in touch if you have a music story to tell. If you or your organisation would like a professional podcast series to reach your own audience, or if you'd like training so you can do it yourself, I can help. Go to TonyLloydRadio.com. Oh, 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 o